Welcome back to Panthers and Gorillas. This is the sixth and final episode of this original series, but pay attention to this feed because I hope to bring you some interviews and updates on these topics as time goes on. If you've been following me thus far, you've heard cursory overviews of Black and Kurdish histories, as well as the histories and practices of some of the most revolutionary organizations they have brought forth, the Black Panther Party and the Kurdistan Workers Party. Cooperation Jackson, and the communes of Rojava, to name a few. It is obvious that the Kurdish and Black freedom movements have some real similarities in historical oppressions, ideas, and practices of resistance. But have they had any direct, material crossover? Have actual people within both movements interacted with one another? There are actually increasing contacts between some sectors of the two movements though I think both movements could learn a whole lot from increasing dialogue with each other on a broader level. As of June 2020, well after I wrote that initial paragraph, there has been an explosion in solidarity between these two movements, exactly as I hoped. I am a pretty active scroller through Twitter, and my timeline is mostly made up of tweets from the Black Freedom Movement, specifically prominent voices of the Black Lives Matter movement. This reflects my early years on Twitter, but more recently I've moved away from my main timeline and curated lists that are much shorter based on specific hot topics I'm interested in. The list I most frequently curate and check is about Rojava and the broader Kurdish freedom movement, with a few of my favorite Black Lives Matter related accounts and general pro-autonomy accounts sprinkled in there. For the first time, my Rojava list and my general timeline are almost indistinguishable from one another. The murder of George Floyd, a black man, by a Minneapolis police officer turned many of the Kurdish Twitter accounts I follow into avid followers of what is happening in the US, the revolts all around the country growing out of the struggle for freedom by black people that is intensifying in a way unseen since 1968. The amount of solidarity I've seen from Kurds towards George Floyd and the black population in the US is incredibly inspiring. Five days after George Floyd was murdered, the Kurdistan women's movement in Latin America made up of diaspora Kurdish women and their supporters in that region, put out the first statement I know of in solidarity, expressing their common struggle and even reflecting their knowledge of black revolutionary history, invoking the name of George Jackson, the famous author and prison activist. From their statement, For us, black lives not only matter, they show us everywhere the only concrete path towards the liberation of society in every part of the world. Not only do we think this is the most urgent time to be part of our common struggles, with our Black Lives Matter companions, we have declared an ongoing world revolution and we will not allow racism to suppress us. We will win our fight. In the name of George Floyd, as of George Jackson, and for all the people who fought at the last breath in the liberation struggle. Another famous Kurdish resistance hero, Mehmet Aksoy, who was killed in the fight against ISIS in their former capital of Raqqa in 2017, also mentioned the inspiration he took in George Jackson, as well as the Black Panther Party, in a speech. George Jackson was imprisoned from before the Panther's existence until his death, but he managed to organize a chapter from inside prison. 
He was killed by guards in 1971. In this audio, you will have the pleasure of hearing Mehmet talk about how the Black Panther Party helped him rediscover his own Kurdish identity. I've spoken in front of many audiences, uh, but I've never felt as honored as I am today. And the reason for that happened 12 years ago. I was in a second-hand bookshop, and I found a book called Blood in My Eye uh, by George Jackson. I'm sorry, I'm very, very emotional. Uh, I used to read this book when I used to go to college, and I used to feel so indignant. You know, I used to, I used to, I used to cry, basically, on the bus or on the train, where I was, where I was reading it. And then I found another book uh, of letters George Jackson wrote to his then 16-year-old brother, Jonathan. And for the first time in my life, at the time, I had been alienated and, and uh, kind of um, uh, didn't accept my own Kurdish identity. And I realized through a Black Panther who was no longer alive, who had struggled in a different part of the world, my own identity. And I think that if it wasn't for George Jackson, if it wasn't for that book, and if it wasn't for that struggle, I probably wouldn't have realized that my, my first contradiction within myself was my national identity. The People's Democratic Party, HDP, a predominantly Kurdish municipalist party dedicated to implementing democratic confederalism and ensuring a peaceful settlement of the Kurdish question, put out an official statement over Twitter about George Floyd, saying, quote, we hope that this brutal murder will lead to the implementation of measures preventing the police from using racist violence against the people and killing them. We know how the African-American people feel when they say, I can't breathe, and support their right to a free life. Garan Ozjan, the HDP representative to the United States, published online pictures of George Floyd, along with a Kurdish teen, Baris Jakan, killed by racists while listening to Kurdish music, and Iyad Halak, an unarmed autistic Palestinian man killed by Israeli police, all killed around the same time. And Ozjan attached a quote from Martin Luther King, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. At the same time, pictures of Kurds being attacked by Turkish police, side by side with images of George Floyd or black protesters also under attack, circulated all over Kurdish Twitter. All one has to do is simply search Kurd George Floyd to see the outpouring of support. Dilar Dirik, a prominent Kurdish activist, took to Twitter to share the importance of solidarity between the two struggles, pointing to the fact that the Turkish state modeled its prisons after those of the U.S., specifically to target the Kurdish movement, just as U.S. prisons are filled with poor black people yesterday and today. The strongest statement of support came from the Umbrella Kurdish Women's Movement for all of Kurdistan, the Kejake. I'll read some excerpts from their lengthy letter. We unequivocally condemn this blatant racially motivated violence perpetrated by the state and express our deepest condolences to the family and friends of George. This crime is neither the first nor unfortunately will be the last of its kind. Only on 19th February of this year, Ten people were murdered in the German city of Hanau in a racist rampage at a cafe. Not a day passes when Kurdish people are not attacked and murdered for simply being Kurdish. Everywhere, particular communities are declared as enemies and attacked. We must not dismiss these kinds of atrocities as individual acts. We have to look at them in the overall context of societal conditions. Nationalism and racism must be challenged critically and fought effectively in the context of the nation-state and capitalism realities. Racism and nationalism are an extremely efficient ideological instrument of state, power, and domination systems. The murder of George Floyd should also be seen as a part of a war that the state is waging against society. According to press releases in 2019, 1,099 people were killed by security forces in the USA alone. Let's build our free life beyond the state, power, and hierarchy through democratic structures of self-organization and self-determination. Women Defend Rojava echoed this sentiment. Quote, our oppression has the same origin, and therefore we must fight together to end it, to defend a free life. 
To fight the murder of the Kurds in Turkey is to fight the murder of black people in the United States. To fight the invasion of northern and eastern Syria is to fight the racism of the police. To defend Rojava is to defend the black community. And to defend the black community is to defend the Kurdish people. Let us rise up and organize because only together will we make racism the painful memory of a finished history. For all the martyrs, from Rojava to the world, we say loudly that black lives matter, Kurdish lives matter, and we are ready to defend them side by side. Black Socialists in America, a rapidly growing black coalition that includes Cooperation Jackson and advocates for decentralized direct democracy in workplaces and communities, published their thanks for the strong words of love and support from the global Kurdish community and reiterated that black and Kurdish peoples have so much to learn from one another in our struggle for liberation. The BSA has repeatedly promoted Abdullah Ojalan's works sharing quotes from him online that reiterate the common values that these movements are embracing, specifically a trend towards direct democracy and against the state. After my video, The Communes of Rojava, appeared alongside BSA's work on the Twitter account of the black comedian Zach Fox, black socialists in America shared a clip from the video about the societal defense forces in Rojava's communes, commenting, here is just one element of organization that we've seen with the Kurdish-led efforts in northeast Syria, Rojava, that provide us with some examples of how we could structure things in opposition to the fascist police state terrorizing our communities here within the United States. They go on to point out the common ground Rojava's system has to that proposed by Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson in 2013 in Let Your Motto Be Resistance in which he calls for the same type of decentralized and accountable community self-defense. Kurdish freedom organizations have been aware of the black struggle for a long time. In episode 1, I played you a song by Siobhan Perwer, written in Kurdish about the McCarthy-era black labor activist Paul Robeson. More recently, in the first national wave of the Black Lives Matter movement, the Kurdish women's movement sent a message on behalf of the YPJ, the all-female autonomous militia in northeast Syria. The message is worth reading in full. Black lives matter. To our black sisters and brothers, the people of Kurdistan stand with you. Here are the women who fight ISIS, the Islamic State, in Rojava and northern Syria. The women's defense units, the YPJ, saluting your honorable struggle for freedom, dignity, and resistance. As the women in Kurdistan know very well, we need to build our self-defense in all spheres of life. You are among the most radical voices in today's racist, sexist, capitalist world, and the freedom-loving peoples of the world deeply respect and salute your fight. Solidarity is the first step to world revolution. Black lives matter. As they say in Kurdistan, resistance is life. They sent a beautiful picture along with the statement showing YPJ fighters posing with a Black Lives Matter sign and saluting with V for victory signs with their fingers. These recent waves of solidarity go both ways. In November 2018, Leila Gouvan began an indefinite hunger strike in Diyarbakir prison, the very prison in which Maslam Dohan set off the wave of anti-torture resistance that made the PKK famous. Previously a mayor who had been jailed for her political stances with at least 30 other local representatives and then released, she was again imprisoned in January 2018 for criticizing the Turkish invasion of Afrin in Rojava. While in prison, she was elected Minister of Parliament for her party, the People's Democratic Party, HDP, the same party I mentioned above that expressed its solidarity with Black Lives Matter protests this week. The hunger strike was not against her own unjust imprisonment. She made that clear to everyone when she continued her hunger strike from home after the state released her in an attempt to end her strike. She starved herself in order to demand an immediate end to the isolation of Abdullah Ojalan, who had been barred from any contact with the outside world or anyone other than the prison guards, including his lawyers, for eight years. He was whom the Kurdish freedom movement had chosen to negotiate with Erdogan's Turkish regime to come to a peaceful solution to the war. But his isolation meant that the state wasn't interested in peace. Leila Gouvin consumed only vitamin B and sugary drinks for 197 days. In the midst of all of this, Angela Davis, a former Black Panther who was herself a hunger striker when she was imprisoned in 1970, 
wrote an editorial in the New York Times expressing her solidarity with Layla, Ojalon, and the Kurdish struggle. Quote, Miss Guven is a major inspiration to people throughout the world who believe in peace, justice, and liberation. I join all those who support her and stand in condemnation of the repressive conditions of Mr. Ojalon's imprisonment. Those of us here in the United States who have protested the expansion of the prison industrial complex have been emboldened over the years by the courageous actions of Kurdish political prisoners, especially by the women who have resisted American-type prisons in Turkey. We should now follow the leadership and example of Ms. Guven in protesting the isolation of Mr. Ojalan, who is recognized as the chief negotiator representing the Kurds in the peace talks with Turkey, and who has declared that the fight for women's equality is central to the revolutionary process. As other imprisoned political figures have been released upon election to Parliament, so too should Miss Guven be freed. Angela Y. Davis, Oakland, California. Unquote. Sadly, as I write this on June 4, 2020, Leila Guven, after being released and once again taking her place in Parliament, was stripped of her parliamentary immunity and detained for saying the words, Berkodan Gianne, resistance is life. Thankfully, she has been released again for the time being. Angela Davis's solidarity is both very meaningful in the sense that it travels halfway around the world from the Black Freedom Movement to the Kurdish Freedom Movement, from one revolutionary woman to another, for the world to see in one of the most read newspapers on the planet, but also in the sense that it proves the affinity between the two movements that I am arguing for in this podcast series. This means that black revolutionaries in the United States are actively following developments in Kurdistan and are looking to them for strength. We see them going beyond statements and seeking a cooperative exchange of education. In 2018, Cooperation Jackson hosted Erjan Eboga of the Mesopotamian Ecology Movement in northern Kurdistan for a two-hour video conversation about the Rojava revolution. Just listen to the admiration that Khalil Kuno expresses for the work of the Kurdish movement and the points he makes on where the similarities lie between them. Uh, but it was a pleasure to have you here. Uh, good seeing you again. Uh, I know our paths have crossed a couple of times. Um, and to just share uh, a bit with us today about the struggle uh, in Rojava, which we've been describing to our membership, uh, is one of the most dynamic and important uh, democratic struggles taking place in the world right now, uh, and that we have a lot to learn uh, from it. Uh, many of us uh, in our, our leadership circle here have been studying uh, uh, the revolution for years now as it's, as it's grown and progressed. Uh, one of the things that, as, as I've shared with you, that we've always uh, found uh, interesting uh, is the parallel between in some of our thinking uh, between what, what was developed as the Jackson Cush Plan uh, and where the, the Roosevelt Revolution and, and the democratic confederalism, the feminization of politics, uh, the, the ecological uh, uh, centering of the project, uh, uh, the development of the solidarity economy, uh, the, just the parallels in terms of what we're trying to do, uh, albeit on a smaller scale, but I think uh, very much connected. Some black activists and organizers have gained so much inspiration from the Kurdish freedom movement that they have traveled to Kurdistan to join the revolution themselves. It is notable that the first internationalist woman to be killed in the fight against ISIS was a black woman from Turkey, Ivana Hoffman. She was killed in 2015 fighting alongside Turkish communists defending a Christian village from the Islamic State. The village where she gave her life, Tiltamer, is currently under attack again, this time from Turkey. Before her 20th birthday, a day that never came, Ivana traveled alone thousands of miles to a country she had never been to to join a revolution of people she'd never met and gave her life on that land in defense of ideals she'd never see come to full fruition. There's no clearer picture of solidarity between nations. Any internationalist revolutionary who comes to Rojava today to work in the civil side of things will start their journey at the internationalist commune of Rojava where they will be welcomed by a portrait of Ivana Hoffman and in the same building see pictures of Fred Hampton and Harriet Tubman. Outside of their own strength, the people of Rojava place their foremost faith, Baweri, 
in their worldwide supporters, thanks to the thousands of internationalists from every continent who have come to join the Rojava revolution and every other struggle for democratic confederalism. From the literal writing on the wall, it is clear that among those internationalists, the black freedom struggle is highly valued. I mentioned earlier that the United States government considers the PKK a terrorist group, as well as their leader, Abdullah Ojalan. The CIA even helped arrest him in 1999. The CIA has a domestic counterpart, the FBI, which treated Martin Luther King as a terrorist during his lifetime. Despite that, Martin Luther King is taught to school children as a hero in basically all American textbooks. There was another famous black civil rights leader the US government considered a terrorist for many years that is now taught as an inspiration to American children. In fact, he was on the FBI's terrorist watch list until 2008, not far off from the time I was taught by my very conservative Texas teachers that he was an inspiration of what it meant to stand up against political oppression. I am of course talking about Nelson Mandela, a South African revolutionary against racial apartheid whose legacy has been sanitized, but who once spent many years as a political prisoner. In 1992, the Turkish state, eager to do a little sanitizing of its own, extended Nelson Mandela an award as a diplomatic outreach to Mandela, who was then the president of South Africa. Kurdish activists quickly wrote Mandela describing the deep history of Turkish oppression of Kurds. There's a quote attributed to Nelson Mandela, but I can't find the exact source. It goes like this. If you really want to know about the Turkish government, be a Kurd for one hour. Whether he said it or not, Nelson Mandela left no doubt that he felt that way when he first declined the award on account of such oppression, then when he wrote a letter to the Kurdish people in 1997. On 6th of September 1997, at the Kurdish festival in Germany, Nelson Mandela sent a message to the Kurdish people in which he said, I am a part of the Kurdish struggle, I am one of you. We know what it means to be oppressed in our country. We know what it means to be insulted in our country. We know the pain of a mother whose children disappear. We know what it means for a child not to be taught in the language of his or her mother. We know what it means to have one's nationality and culture insulted. This is what the government of Turkey is doing to the Kurds. It is for this reason that I am not your visitor, I am not your guest, I am part of the Kurdish struggle, I am one of you. We know that the European community, and particularly Germany, use the excuse of terrorism and state security to stop a peace process. I want to tell them that President Nelson Mandela was also called a terrorist. Today is the president of South Africa. I want to tell them that Robert Mugabe was called a terrorist. Today is the president of Zimbabwe. President Samuel Joma was called a terrorist. Today is the president of Namibia. My dearest friends and comrades, we hope that very soon that your leaders will be in your parliament in Kurdistan and you will have your own president. Our proposal to the world is very simple. If we want peace, then we must talk to the leaders of the Kurds. The war waged by Turkey is not only against PKK, it is also against human rights in Turkey. It is also a war against the masses, the workers and the labor movements. And it's a war against democracy in Turkey. Terrorism is used as an excuse to deny the human rights of the Kurds and also the people of Turkey. When I look at this gathering here, then I know that we sing and we dance. But like us before, I know that deep down in your heart, you have a desire to be free and to, be self, to have self-determination. This dancing and singing here is your expression for a desire for your motherland. You do not want to be spread all over the world. You want to be in Kurdistan. Comrades, friends, the peace trade was stopped. But if I look at you here, I am convinced 
that nobody will be able to stop the determination of the Kurdish people to be free. BG Sirak INC. BG Sirak Apo. I am part of the Kurdish struggle. I am one of you. To declare one struggle as synonymous for the other is internationalism defined. Remember this history when one day Abdullah Ocalan is declared a hero in American textbooks, alongside Nelson Mandela. The Black Freedom Movement and the Kurdish Freedom Movement, to the extent that they've become aware of one another, have made alliances immediately at those moments. The American government will do the same when it is convenient and when those revolutionary figures are dead or rendered harmless to the status quo. It is clear to me that both the Kurdish Freedom Movement and the Black Freedom Movement could gain in morale, inspiration, and practical aid from expanding this solidarity between them. Statements of solidarity, while hopeful signs and while great for morale, must be backed up by concrete aid for the relationship to come to fruition. One way this could be done is for delegations from Kurdistan to come to places like Jackson or Dallas or Chicago to meet with organizers in those cities, share their visions and models through the community, and tour autonomous infrastructure and learn about the history of the Black Freedom Movement. The opposite should and can happen too. A Black delegation can go to Rojava and get a tour of the society, participate in the institutions, talk with everyday people, and the like. These kinds of delegations are not unprecedented for either side. Ilam Ahmed, the co-executive of the Syrian Democratic Council, Northeastern Syria's diplomatic wing, visited Christian groups in Washington, D.C. on a diplomatic visit. I have heard but cannot confirm with evidence that she visited solidarity groups, too. If only she had an invite from Black Lives Matter, D.C., Starting in 2015, Florida-based Black Freedom Group, the Dream Defenders, has taken four delegations to Palestine to express their solidarity with the Palestinian people and the left movements there. Their report back speak of them coming back strengthened and challenged and inspired and astonished by the stubborn resistance of the people there to such harrowing oppression by the Israeli state. Based on the experiences in these delegations, activists in Durham, North Carolina, organized demilitarized from Durham to Palestine demonstrations, fighting both the militarization of the Durham Police Department and their working with the Israeli police and military to exchange techniques and technology used to repress both the Palestinian and the Ethiopian Jewish population, as well as radical movements in Israel and Palestine. How easily the U.S.-Turkish state cooperation could fit into such demonstrations? While solidarity demonstrations, banner drops, fundraisers, teach-ins, and video chats between these freedom movements would all be heartening, there is no substitute for real, face-to-face -face exchanges of smiles, hugs, laughter, ideas, and commitments of solidarity with each other. The powerful and enduring contributions to the world that both the Black and Kurdish freedom movements have brought to the world would be only magnified should they join together in solidarity. Expanding on these initial outreaches would be a win for freedom-seeking people everywhere. Kurdistan, Syria. I love you, Derrico Hamko. I love you, Kurdistan. I love you, Aram Nitsa. Free Kurdistan, Syria. I love you, Derrico Hamko. I love you, Kurdistan. Kurdistan, I love you. I love you. I love you. Hamishlo. Hamishlo. Amude. Amude. Kubane. Kubane. Afrin. Afrin. Derik. Derik. Derka Hamko. Derka Hamko. Juadie. Juadie. Trbespie. Trbespie. Serekanie. Oh, Kobane. I love you, Alam Mirza. Free Kurdistan, Syria. I love you, Derrico Hamko. I love you, Kurdistan. I love you, Kurdistan. Kurdistan be free. Kurdistan be free. Kurdistan be free. I love you, Aram Mirza. Free Kurdistan, Syria. I love you, Derek Hamko. I love you, Kurdistan. Hey! I love you, Kurdistan. Positive vibe from Chicken Head. 
friend down in Zurich, down in the park. Wishing you good health and long life. Christian long life. Good Christian prosperity. I love you, and I miss you. Free good Christian Syria. I love you, Derek Hamko. I love you, good Christian. Good Christian be free. Good Christian be free. Over six episodes and several hours, I've given you a rough sketch of the histories of Kurdish and Black freedom movements, and traced the contours of the crossover between them. The dialogue and shared practice of these two movements is still in its infancy, but their paths from oppression to resistance to autonomy are too similar to be kept in separate, geographically divided spheres. It has been my participation in both movements that has etched this fact into my heart but it was actually a conversation with a Kurdish friend of mine who expressed interest in the Black Panther Party upon seeing the documentary Vanguard of the Revolution that inspired me to make this podcast. Rewatching the documentary with this lens in mind, I couldn't help but think of the Kurdish freedom movement at every turn. Both Kurds in the Middle East and African descended people in America were forcibly removed from their lands, relocated based on the needs of exploitative systems, systematically dehumanized, denied their traditions, and removed from their histories. Both nurtured their cultural heritage under the cover of darkness and away from the state's watchful eyes, using code, deception, and creativity to keep their traditions alive and their spirits high. Both have historically taken refuge in hard-to-reach places where they have carved out autonomy. African Americans in swamps and islands, Kurds in the mountains. Both Kurds and black people have never passively accepted their oppression and they have rich histories of resistance, unarmed and armed, evading and fighting back, private and public, localized and internationalist. The 1960s and 70s brought about a wave of global awareness of repression and large-scale social movements in Kurdistan and in America, and the Marxist tradition at one point influenced the trajectory of both. The Black Panther Party, while claiming this tradition, gained broad-based support in the black community and in allied supporters of many ethnic backgrounds and carved out its own unique legacy that was built upon its specific context. The party ran into limitations of the Marxist paradigm and started to delineate its own ideology that was more rooted in the autonomous capacity of the black community and the rendering of the dominant power structures of state and economy obsolete by the meeting of the needs of their community themselves. Cooperative economics became a big part of their struggle and self-defense was imperative. Nationalism started as a central component of their theory and practice, but quickly became entwined with the fights for freedom of other ethnic groups and societal sectors in America and around the world, and developed a more holistic approach based on the lifting of all boats and the fostering of interconnected autonomies instead of new ruling powers. Other black organizations similarly trended towards nationalism and nation-statism before running into roadblocks and shifting towards visions that embraced autonomy and decentralization. Years later, the PKK formed under similar principles and similar aspirations. They too started for self-defense, cultural protection, and to gain revolutionary power, but felt cornered enough by the repression to up the ante to full-on guerrilla warfare. And early on, they found supporters from outside their own community, Turks and Assyrians, Europeans and Palestinians. But they initially sought their own nation-state, in line with so much of the Marxist-inspired anti-imperialist tradition. Just as for the Black Panthers, this approach left something to be desired on the other side of years of hard-fought struggle, repression, and mixed results. Both movements had their leaders jailed or assassinated, their names tarnished, and their ideas distorted by their respective ruling states. And it was the reflections upon facing this repression that forced paradigm shifts in both the black movements and the Kurdish movements. In more recent years, the idea of capturing the state or creating a new nation state has had to be examined in light of examples of such practices from elsewhere and their overall failure to bring about actual freedom that empowers people to make decisions over their own lives. Self-reflection and critique 
have long had important roles in both movements, and they seem to have wrought new trajectories toward decentralization and increased rejection of hierarchy in favor of more direct participatory democratic approaches and accountable, non-authoritative leadership. Women have refused to take the back seat and have pushed themselves to the forefront, building cutting-edge models of autonomy, care, support, and accountability in both movements. Autonomy and self-sufficiency have become the new watchwords, while fewer and fewer people find hope in institutions and top-down power structures. Increasingly, too, economy is no longer synonymous with industrialism among adherents of these social movements. Instead, value is found in ecological and cooperative business models directly accountable to the communities that are integral to their existence. The trends I have tried to trace in these episodes are trends not limited to the Kurdish freedom movement or black freedom movement. Though the communes and cooperatives of Rojava, Cooperation Jackson, the Black Women's Defense League, and the grandmas autonomously taking up arms to defend northeast Syrian streets represent some of the most inspiring examples of these trends. Who has the power? Who has the knowledge? Who makes the decisions? Are these things concentrated in self-appointed politicians and elites who claim to speak for everyone in these struggles? Or are they diffused as widely as possible so that new freedom movements won't have to pop up in a few decades to defeat the oppression of the old freedom movement? These are the questions rising to the top of the agenda now that the Cold War era mythical dichotomies have been shattered. In Kurdistan and Black America, the momentum is swinging to the latter. There have been sprinklings of acknowledgement from the figures and organizations of each movement toward the other's fights and gestures of support whenever possible. But with such similar histories and trajectories, the benefits of expanding this cooperation, not just to these two freedom movements, but to humanity as a whole, are endless. Abdullah Ojalan's paradigm of the democratic nation calls for the uniting of peoples not based on geographical lines on a map, but on a common mindset, a consciousness of freedom and cooperation, and directly democratic governance. If there is one lesson that shines above the rest from the experiences of the autonomous administration of northeast Syria and the attacks they have faced by ISIS and the Turkish state, it is that freedom-seeking peoples can never rely on states to come to their aid in the final analysis. The Kurdish movement has made clear that their biggest hope is in their own collective strength and in the thousands of internationalist people and movements who have made the Kurdish struggle their own struggle. Black American history has proved a similar fact. Alliance with, and fights to control, the state in the name of civil rights has always been fragile, fraught with the state's self-interest and betrayal. It has been the strength of these black-led social movements themselves, along with the relationships they have built with accomplices and other movements that have been the real leverage point behind the gains that they have won thus far, from the Maroons and the Underground Railroad to the Rainbow Coalition and beyond. My experiences with the Black Freedom Movement and Kurdish Freedom Movement have led me to a personal stake in seeing these disparate but similar parts of my life come together and learn from each other. But outside of that, their respective histories, organizations, and accomplishments reinforce that same lesson. I hope this podcast series can scratch the surface towards expanding cooperation between these two historic contributions to human freedom and autonomy. The democratic nation that Ojulon referred to is powerful not in feelings of solidarity, but in concrete actions between peoples that see themselves as part of one common journey towards a cooperative framework, a confederal unity of radically democratic structures. The groundwork for these actions has been laid, but the real journey is on the horizon, and it depends in great part on if and how these two movements continue to walk forward together.
wrapping up the recording for this podcast, I found out about a longtime organizer in the Black Freedom Movement named Modibo Kadali, who has gone through a very similar transition through the course of his life to the one Abdullah Ojalan went through. Modibo was active in black labor organizing during the 1960s and 70s, as well as efforts to establish pan-African organizing with people of African descent across borders. I really wish I had discovered him sooner so I could incorporate more of his perspective into this podcast, but I hope to learn more about him in the future. He has written about the Rojava Revolution in his book, Pan-African Social Ecology, but I haven't yet been able to get my hands on a copy. Barring my knowledge about his direct thoughts on, or correspondence with, the Kurdish Freedom Movement, 
I can only look to the ideas that he has been providing within the Pan-African movement for a while now, and compare them to the similar ideas we are seeing growing out of the Kurdish freedom movement. During his time with the Central Committee of the Revolutionary League of Black Workers in the early 1970s, Modibo became disillusioned with the centralist nature of that organization, and of vanguard politics in general. In listening to a quote from him, found in an essay as part of Cindy Milstein's curated anthology book, Deciding for Ourselves the Promise of Direct Democracy, one can hear the similarities with Ojalan's path, from being part of a highly centralized Marxist-Leninist movement, to growing disillusioned, to reading Murray Bookchin, to advocating for decentralized direct democracy as a path to liberation for his people and all people. Here's an excerpt where Medibo talks about his path. The most perplexing question for me, however, was the role of the state. My only political vision at that point in my life was that of a socialist nation-state ruled by the working class, which is what most Marxists desired at that time. This state socialism was supposed to represent the next stage of human social and economic development. Of course, this nation-state was supposed to be large and highly centralized, like the kind we saw in the USSR or China then. And part of that vision was a conception of nationalism that coincided with the emergence of the post-colonial third world states. I began to see that these big, massive, bulky nation-states were contributing to the problem of social oppression and the emerging post-colonial states of Africa, the Caribbean, and elsewhere in the Third World were not solving any problems for their own people. So I started to look at more localized and directly democratic conceptions of socialism, and more intimate forms of democracy, where people could look at themselves and each other face-to-face -face and solve their problems collectively. That's direct democracy to me. Direct democracy is also meaningless, though, without a clear understanding of social ecology. Murray Bookchin said that, to paraphrase, there is a social crisis at the basis of every ecological crisis, or every ecological crisis is in reality a social crisis. Consequently, ecological crises expose social crises. It follows that societies that are organized hierarchically and based on for-profit markets cannot solve or even adequately address any ecological crisis. What is more intimate and integral to our lives and future, after all, than the directly democratic control over our immediate environment and living space? That's the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food we eat. We must learn to democratically control the spaces that we inhabit, to expand and take responsibility for them. We can no longer afford to allow others to do this for us. We must learn to do this for ourselves, in concert with our neighbors and other communities, which can happen through directly democratic town hall meetings, assemblies, and other popular forums that are empowered to make decisions." Unquote. So we can see that he's walking a very similar road to Abdullah Ojalan after similar experiences and very similar movements. And just like Ojalan, Modibo took what Bookchin was saying and focused even more heavily on the women's liberation component than Bookchin had, though I should make clear that Murray Bookchin was an ardent advocate for women's freedom. It's just that Modibo and Ojalan felt the need to put an even greater emphasis on these points. Modibo shows this focus in his critiques of many of the black freedom movement's organizations in the 1970s, saying that there were two important questions that were not dealt with by these institutions. First was the question of gender and women's liberation. Second was the ecological question, which was largely ignored by many people in these movements. In a way, Modibo's experiences are a microcosm of the broader trends that are arising in the Black Freedom Movement and the Kurdish Freedom Movement and many social movements that found themselves very connected to the 1960s and 70s era Marxist movements and then went through a period of disillusionment and reimagining. I walked you through a similar transformation that happened within the Republic of New Africa wing of the movement. But Modibo himself has some critiques of Cooperation Jackson, which I cited as an example born out of that movement earlier on. A lot of his critiques rely on some of the same things that Kalia Kuno was self-reflecting on in the article I quoted earlier, especially surrounding their foray into the mayor's office. I'm not sure to what extent Modibo knew about Kalia and Cooperation Jackson's self-critique, or if that self-critique has borne out positive change towards a repositioning towards real direct democracy. But it's worth airing Modibo's criticisms here. Quote, 
It's also important to remember that the mere presence of popular assemblies in a movement or community does not necessarily indicate the presence of direct democracy. Sometimes these assemblies are still quite removed from the type of intimate contact that people need to develop some kind of real understanding about who they are, that humans are part of nature, and human society is a natural development. Popular assemblies can often become spaces where people talk, listen, and inform one another, but where frequently nothing is decided. The movement in Jackson, Mississippi is one example of this. Cooperation Jackson fell into the trap of so-called participatory democracy. People in Jackson come together to discuss and propose ideas in the assemblies, but ultimately Mayor Lumumba makes all the decisions. That's just another form of representative democracy. The people are not yet making the decisions themselves. The role is only advisory, and the basic hierarchy of state power is still in place, now legitimized by the rhetoric of direct democracy. It's important to clarify that participatory democracy is not direct democracy at all. Most of all, because it lacks the necessary intimacy. And too often, it only means participating in a conversation while someone else ultimately decides what to do. Unquote. This is not the first time in this series that I've shared critiques from one organization to another. I share these critiques not out of division, but because they are intended to build up the movement as a whole and strengthen its capacity to live up to its ideals. I hope Modibo's critique of Cooperation Jackson, an organization I deeply admire, is heated and turned into inspiration to even more thoroughly dive into the building of directly democratic neighborhood and workplace assemblies. I want to close with another extended quote from Modibo Kadali about a reimagined vision of Pan-Africanism, a very strong component within the Black Freedom Movement. Quote, if, as recent history demonstrates, Pan-Africanism is going to be defined by the unity or clustering of Black-ruled nation-states and Black capitalism, it serves no purpose other than the continued oppression of Black exploited classes under Black elites. Such models are as inadequate to Black liberation as they are to solving climate change. The concept of Pan-Africanism, however, is perfectly compatible with the development of locally decentralized and directly democratic institutions in areas where African people live and work. Pan-Africanism can be applied in the same way as the indigenous peoples or working class peoples movement, not for the reform of the nation state or a nationalist movement, but as a decentralized, local, anti-state movement where black and or indigenous people live and struggle a non-exclusive movement, including all local organizers who are engaged in autonomous self-organization and the creation of directly democratic institutions that can respect all oppressed people." Unquote. What could be more compatible with the Kurdish movement's concept of the democratic nation? Modibo has even convened an organization dedicated to these ends, the Autonomous Research Institute for Direct Democracy and Social Ecology. All that's left now is for those sectors that make up the democratic nation to find each other, recognize each other as part of the same fight, and to come up with ways to collectively build each other up and defend each other in the broadest sense of the word defense. Thank you so much for listening to Panthers and Gorillas, Black America, Kurdistan, and their struggles for freedom. This tops off a six-part series written by me, Ian Campbell, aka Neighbor Democracy. I want to thank at Mamosta underscore for the cover art. That's at M-A-M-O-S-T-A underscore. I just can't express how much I love this artwork. You can find her on Instagram at Connie Joff. That's at K-A-N-I-J-A-F-F. She has some great artwork on there as well as some sweet stickers of Abdullah Ojalan in a tracksuit. So you can order and help her out. The intro song you heard on this episode was Hell You Tom Bout by Janelle Monet, an anthem of the Black Lives Matter movement that features the names of just some of the black people who have been killed by police over the last several years. In the first interlude, you heard I Love You Kurdistan, Syria. Unfortunately, this song is uncredited, uh, but folks on Twitter said it was a Jamaican street singer expressing his solidarity for the Kurds. This video is at least six years old, but possibly even an eight-year-old video now. If anyone can help me credit this song, please reach out and I will post it in the description. After that, we have Felistin by Juwan Hajo, 
tapping into that spirit of internationalist solidarity I've been talking about. In this song, famous Kurdish singer Jawan Hajo expresses his support of the Palestinian struggle for freedom. Lastly, this final song is Shervano by Hunergeha Welat, a collaborative work by Mehmoud Berazi, Haji Musa, and those really, really creative folks in the autonomous administration areas who are loosely or uh, completely affiliated with the Rojava film commune. Shervano means fighter, and it was written and filmed as a music video in the days leading up to Turkey's invasion of northeast Syria in October 2019. Don't feel bad if these spellings aren't coming naturally to you. I have all of the songs written in the descriptions um, of every episode so that you can find them. If you would like a transcript or any sources I use for this podcast series, you can reach out to me on Twitter at IndustrialDemoc. That's at Industrial, I-N-D-R-U-S-T-R-I-A-L, Democ, like the first five letters in democracy, D-E-M-O-C. Thanks again for listening, and as I said before, stay tuned to this feed for related interviews and updates on Black Kurdish solidarity I may add in the future. Also, for more information about the Rojava revolution, as well as videos about struggles for real democracy in everyday life, check out my YouTube channel, Neighbor Democracy. Apart from making content like this, I also conduct online trainings on how you can start a neighborhood pod, hyper-local coordinations of neighbors to help meet each other's needs, get to know one another, and even come together to make decisions on the issues that affect your block. If you want to know more about that, you can reach out to me on Twitter or YouTube as well. For those of you turning these theories into action and real autonomy, stay safe and take care of each other out there. Shervanu, challengu as gori de, dil ke yare barade, de fengle sar milano ho. Shervanu, shervanu ho, shervanu, shervanu, challengu as gori de, dil ke yare barade, de fengle sar milano ho. Shervanu, shervanu ho, shervanu, shervanu ho, shervanu. Sharbanu, Gurkettine Berhanu, Lumi Bede Singanu, Blessu Veska Hairanu, Sharbanu, 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 Gurkettine Berhanu, Lumi Bede Singanu, Blessu Veska Hairanu, Sharbanu, 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 Sharbanu. Shervano, 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 Shervano,